Hello and welcome to episode 64 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 10 years experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Julie McCarthy, the Southeast Asia correspondent for National Public Radio based in Manila. Well, normally based in Manila. As you'll hear, she's been in the United States due to complications with travel during the pandemic, but she's still covering Southeast Asia. Julie has really done just about every posting for NPR. She's been in Japan, London, Brazil, Pakistan, India, Israel, and that might even be me forgetting a stop. Somehow, it all started with her just showing up at a public radio station and asking to help out. I was surprised to find out that, like me, Julie is from Wisconsin. I know I've had many Wisconsinites on the show by now, but I swear when I set out to interview her, I had no idea. If there's a theme to this episode and a through line in the stories that Julie likes best, it's history. The stories she chooses to highlight bring to life some truly dramatic events in history, including ones you've heard of, like the bombing of Hiroshima, as well as some you might not know much about, like the partitioning of India and Pakistan. I'll let her say more about it, but if you're interested, please do check out links to her stories in the podcast description. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Julie McCarthy, NPR's Southeast Asia correspondent. First off, I'd just like to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Julie. You're so welcome, Jake. Really fun to be here. Just to warm up a little bit, if you could tell us a little bit about where you are, both your physical surroundings and where you are geographically, and then a little bit about what the past couple days of work have been like for you. Oh, well, um, I am basically a, um, I'm a refugee in the pandemic. (laughs) I am sitting in the United States. I'm uh, what we call on the Riviera of the Midwest. I'm (laughs) sitting in, uh, I'm sitting beside the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan, actually, in Wisconsin. Oh, I'm from Wisconsin. Are you? Where? Yeah, yeah, I'm from, uh, I was born up in Oshkosh for the first eight years and then down in Madison area for the rest till I was 18. Lovely. Okay. Oshkosh, Bagosh, and Dane County. Well done you. What about you? Well, I'm a badger. I am definitely a badger. I'm sitting here in the tiny little town that time forgot, but didn't really (laughs) because it blew up. It blew up in the summer of 2020. And anybody who had been watching would not have been surprised by this. Um, I'm in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which was the center of a really serious civil rights question and put this town on the map in ways that people who live here would have preferred it not be put on the map. Yeah, it's horrendous what happened here. Mm -hmm. But as I say, it was also in many ways, if you had your eyes open and saw what was happening here over the years, you couldn't have been too surprised by any of it. Right. And did you cover that? Were you there already? I mean, that was... You know, I, I did cover part of it. I did cover part of it, but I was... The truth is, I still am very involved in covering Asia. And I was here for that and was covered bits of it. But it was in the height of the pandemic, and it made it really difficult to do that. And so I, uh, at the preference of the network, continued to cover Asia. I mean, they had all kinds of national people kind of flocking in here to, to pick up on it. So um, yeah, no, I kind of played around at the edges of it. 
Gotcha. And then, yeah, the second part of the question, I know you're never supposed to ask double-barreled questions, but I did, is what have the last few days of work been like? Have you been super busy, or is everything drowned out by Ukraine, or are you somehow finding that? Oh, no, no, no. You know, this is a kind of job where things, no matter what's happening in the world, there's rarely a lull in, in where you are or where what, or what you cover. I mean, I cover a vast region. I cover Southeast Asia. And the last couple of days have been um, absorbed by the absolutely incredible events in the presidential race in the Philippines, where the son of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, is riding high in the polls and is likely to be elected. 50 years after his father declared martial law in the Philippines, he is likely to be elected the president of the Philippines in a rather improbable comeback for a disgraced Marcos family. Yeah, well, so just before we move on to kind of get into your biography, I I was just curious. uh, I mean, I'm friends with uh, John Ruich, for example, who works for NPR, and I know there are other people in your situation where he's supposed to be in China, but pandemic happens. He's doing it from California. I just wonder for for you guys who are on the other side of the world time zone wise, if you're constantly working at like three in the morning or how you manage that. Oh, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy, Jake. You don't sleep because you have to be up when their day is up. And I have to be up at midnight. My time is, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon in, in the part of the world where I normally am two o'clock in the afternoon. And so you're up in the middle of the night trying to deal with people on their time zone and interviewing them. And during uh, our day, their night, you're putting things together and dealing with Washington and dealing with newscasts and dealing with the millions of things that go into putting stories together. And interestingly, though, I mean, being in the United States allows you to kind of tap into the expertise of the United States, which you often don't really do when you're sitting, you know, 10 time zones away or 12 time zones away or whatever it is, when you're sitting a half a world away, you don't tend to. But it's very interesting to see that and to be able to tap into that in a more robust way now that you're sitting here in the United States. So it has its advantages, but mostly it's been a seriously sleep depriving exercise. (laughs) No question. No question about it. Yeah, I mean, this is all about not being able to get visas and, you know, for a long time, not wanting anybody to come into their countries and then not wanting Americans because we had such a serious case of the pandemic here, not wanting Americans in their countries. And then this thing just dragging on longer than anyone had hoped. And so getting into these countries is no small issue. If you're going in there to work, you know, going in as a tourist is one thing. But going in there to work is quite another. You have got to have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. And, and in a place like Manila, we have a formal official bureau. And it makes it much more tricky to fly under the radar, <laughs> which is what we often do in the world. People say that they're working more in the pandemic. A lot of people work remotely, and that's really taking it to the extreme. Yeah, Well, that's just to give a sense of what things are like for you today, which we'll get more into towards the end of the interview. But uh, next, I want to talk a bit about your biography. And since we have a lot of student journalists and young journalists listeners wondering how people get to where they are today, I like to really get into it and start way back at the beginning. If you could tell us where you were born, 
a little bit about what growing up was like and if something planted the seed of interest in journalism early on for you? No, uh, I suppose my father planted this seed in me, but uh, but I rejected that. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a politician. I wanted to be something else. I didn't want to be a journalist. I wanted to be on the other side of the microphone. And from a very young age, I was always interested in politics and went off to the university and studied history and English literature and political science. And from there, I went to law school. Are you from Wisconsin? Was this in Wisconsin or where is this? I did. I, I attended the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Oh, nice. And I then found myself quickly wended my way to Washington, D.C. And I decided it lodged in my brain during college was national public radios, all things considered. I would hear it in the afternoon and, and I would just file it away in the back of my head. That sounds like an interesting thing to do. And lo and behold, I find myself in Washington, D.C., because I wanted to work on Capitol Hill. I was all Potomac fevered. (laughs) (laughs) But that didn't take long for that to wash away, I have to say. (laughs) I I think I was on Capitol Hill for about a week, and I determined, boy, this is just a place where everybody hitches their wagon to somebody else's star. (laughs) It's just (laughs) not what I want to do. And so I I said, okay, I think maybe I want to be Nina Totenberg. And for people who don't know who that is, Nina Totenberg is our storied, fabled uh, correspondent who covers the Supreme Court. And so I, um, I was, I went off to law school and I was kind of torn between being a a litigator and and a journalist. And then I decided quite early on that me in a library with an idea was great, but boy, I really needed a lot more interaction with the world. So (laughs) I went to the local station in Washington, D.C., I had worked at a law firm with these marvelous women who at one point had had run the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, when Richard Nixon was in power. And they basically ran it from behind the scenes. And so they knew everybody in broadcasting. And they would send me off to people like Joel Chaseman, who was this big heavyweight, you know, in the whole broadcast world, to talk to Joel about what I should do to kind of get in this game. And Joel sort of wrote this sort of playbook for me. He said, oh, I know what you should do. He said, says, if you don't want to do television, are you sure you don't want to do television? I said, I'm not sure I want to do television. I said, I'm not sure about that. But I really love radio and I really love national public radio. And he says, well, this is what you do. You go to the local station, WAMU in Washington, D.C. on election night. And you tell them, I'm Julie McCarthy and I'm here to help you. What can I do? He said, they'll probably look at you like you're crazy and they'll put you to work. And that's exactly (laughs) what I did. I followed his I followed him to the letter and I got a job there. I had the greatest job there. Like, you know, within months I got a job there. This is all this is, you, you know, this is just kind of fluky. I got a job there and I covered the District of Columbia politics, which at that point was great fun. It was like going to, you know, the the set of a sitcom. It was crazy politics, fascinating politics. People were funny. They were intensely smart. They were they were unorthodox. They were a little subversive. I'm talking about local politics in Washington, D.C., not Capitol Hill, you know, the other people, you know, who ran the city, as it were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like Marion Barry, who was this storied character, uh, cover Marion Barry. So it was it was a great job. And I was in the courts as a consequence of that 
of, of covering the District of Columbia, I was in the courts a great deal, which was very near and dear to my heart. And one day they called us all in and said, you know, it's been nice to know you. You're all fired. <laughs> and they were they just they, you know, they did away with the news with the newsroom. And the very next night I had to go on. I had I did a weekly television show. I had to go on the show and and sort of announce to them that I wasn't I wasn't going to be doing that anymore because I didn't really have the uh, the perch to do that anymore. But the next day, actually, I walked into National Public Radio, and it just so happened that Weekend Edition Saturday was starting. That Saturday, it was launching. Scott Simon Show was launching, and it just so happened. There was a governor's race in Virginia, and it just so happened that the first black um, to be elected, uh, the strongest candidate in, in that race, looked as though he was going to you know, pull off something historic in Virginia, and he did. And so that's, I mean, we never, you know, I didn't look back. I, I marched over to the network, and I picked up kind of where I, where I had left off at the local station, and in the beginning, I did everything at National Public Radio. And, you know, those were the days, Jake, when you could do everything, you know. You could be a producer on the overnight, you know, which was great fun on Morning Edition. That was when Bob, I, I, I was there when Bob Edwards was the host. And it was a great, great fun. I mean, nobody was around. We kind of ran the place. It was just a very different oeuvre from the day side. But from then, you just kind of you could figure out what it is you wanted to do. You could explore things. I think much more than people can do that today. You know, I was a newscaster. I was a weekend reporter. I was, you know, wrote wrote copy for Carl Castle. I, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, you just did everything. Produced stories for Bob Edwards. You reported on X, Y, and Z that was happening in the city. You covered the courts. You you know covered the Oliver North trial with Nina. You know, Nina Totenberg was a brilliant teacher and she'd kind of take me under her wing and teach me how to do this job. And it didn't take long, though, before that overnight turned into something else. I was very, very uh, attracted to international news and they needed it was pretty clear that they they needed an overnight foreign editor, an overnight editor, really, who would just real pull in foreign news from around the world. And I said, why don't I do that? And the foreign editor, who was this wonderful guy by the name of John McChesney, who was a true pioneer of national public radio, I think he built every desk, uh, said, hey, you want to do that? That's great. Let's try it out. And so from there, I I joined the desk on the day side. I was the European editor when the Berlin Wall came down, which is why what's happening in Ukraine is something I watch with intense interest. And then I said, I'm going to go overseas now. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm going to go to China. Why don't we open the China Bureau? And they said, we don't have money for a China Bureau. And I said, <laughs> well, we need something in Asia. Since Alan Burlow has left Manila and we no longer have anything, and all we have is we have London and we have Moscow, um, we have to cover Asia. And so the Star Chamber went off and came back and said, congratulations, you're going to Tokyo. And so I packed my bags. I never looked back. I called my family and I said, Tokyo. And a dear friend said, Tokyo. He said, you march back in there and tell them yes, a thousand times. (laughs) So that was it. I was a fellow at the East West Center in Honolulu. And they really launched me into Asia. 
from there, I, you know. That was before you went to Tokyo, like in preparation? It was just before, like months before. Yeah, in preparation for it. I went to the East-West Center and they, they took us all over Asia, which was remarkable. And it was the first time I'd stepped foot in, in, in Japan. And after that fellowship, I went off to Middlebury and studied the Japanese and came out of that and then launched into Japan, which was a wonderful way to begin an overseas tour. It was 1994, believe it or not, before many of the people who may be listening to this podcast were born. And in that time, I circumnavigated the globe. I've opened or occupied seven different bureaus. But when I landed in Tokyo 28 years ago, I did think, Jake, that I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> it coincided with the 50th anniversary of World War II. I saw Japan mark the Hiroshima bombing anniversary, which was one of the most moving things I've witnessed I came away breathless from that and vowing that my grandchildren would, would go to Hiroshima and see that. And I covered Asia, much of Asia, from Tokyo. And then the midnight call came asking me to go to London. And so I trooped off to London rather unhappily because I wanted to go to China. And it was a rough transition going from, from Japan, where everything works in that country, um, to a country where very little works, but they're very charming about it. <laughs> so I was soon swoon, swooning over London too. Uh, and I, I actually remember um, in the late 80s, or early, no, it was the early 90s, walking into the London Bureau, our London Bureau in the, in, in the BBC Bush House. And above it is this inscription dedicated to all the English speaking peoples of the world. And I walked through and I said, wow, I'm coming back here one day. And that was the day I did. When I left Tokyo, I went to that very office. And it was marvelous. A lot of us actually, oddly enough, from, from Tokyo ended up in London. So it was one of these all's well that ends well kind of stories. And is it the type of thing where you just would, I mean, I talked to, you know, people who were in Reuters long before me and they'd just kind of get a call mm -hmm. and they'd be like, how would you feel about going to London or how would you feel about going to wherever? Is that just how it happened? I mean, you weren't asking for oh, it. Oh, literally, literally, it was a midnight call. I was in Jakarta. <laughs> uh, the government had fallen. Suharto was basically toppled. And it was late that year. It was in 1998. He was toppled. And in 1999, I was off to London. But it wasn't the midnight call came. And I, it, I found it really upsetting, Jake. Hmm. And I said, wait a minute, what happened to China? Well, what was the reason <laughs> they wanted course, to pull you there's out? There's always a, no, well, there you go. There's always a backstory, Jake, right? right? Like someone had quit and I was supposed to be the cavalry that was supposed to ride in mm. and make it look like everything was fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's nothing here to see. You know, we're, we're moving without any, you know, missing any beats. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, that's, that's how these things are usually. I mean, there's some calamitous rupture. I mean, very rarely does the chessboard move in a kind of smooth way. There's always something that, you know, happens or occasions or people leave or someone comes or there's someone else takes over the company or, you know, and has a different idea, you know, before you know it, you're opening different bureaus. Um, so, yeah, that's what that was about. So I trooped off to London and spent several years there. And um, I landed in, uh, after that, I landed in the Middle East where I found 
the people, I mean, there's a huge pull in my heart in, in the Middle East. The people are endlessly gracious. They're hospitable. And it's also in an endless uproar. You know, if you love contention, you'll love the Middle East. And that's what I found. And from there, I went to Rio de Janeiro, I think the world's most beautiful city. And I had the entire continent of South America to myself. And I had it during a really interesting time, Jake. It was when the pink tide was washing over the continent. The left was back in power. It was a crazy ride with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Lulu da Silva was the president of, of Brazil, riding very high. Evo Morales was the man on the scene in, in Bolivia. Michelle Bachelet came to power in Chile. And it also happens to be, you know, one of the most beautiful continents. Uh, I would urge people not, not to miss it. I mean, every country is unique. They're beguiling. And it's a straight shot down from the United States. There's no reason not to go explore South America. And from, from there, I, I went from polar opposites. I went from Rio de Janeiro to Pakistan. And that was in 2009, and it was President Obama's pet project, Pakistan, and it became ours. And, and Jake, I knew that. I could tell what was coming. I could tell that phone call was going to come saying, you know, Rio's great, but we really need a Pakistan bureau. <laughs> so I volunteered. I had no idea what I was getting into. I knew nothing about Pakistan. And I flew in the dead of night and it was pouring rain and I pulled into this guest house and the next morning I threw open the drapes and there was this beautiful sort of village green, green, green. And I thought, wow, this place shimmers. What is this? So I went out to explore Islamabad and I can tell you, I adored Pakistan. I think the people were astounding. It's kind of like the Middle East, but in a good mood, <laughs> meaning there's all that graciousness and hospitality of the Middle East, but happy. You know, there's kind of an accent on happy. That's South Asia. And from there, I crossed the border into India and I stayed for five and a half years thinking I couldn't leave until I understood it. And then I had two sort of warring ideas in my mind about that. Wait a minute, I understood this the month after being here. <laughs> Why am I still here? Or I was right, I'll never understand it. I better, it's time to shove off. So I returned to East Asia to open our, our newest bureau, Manila, which is basically a backdoor into China and to see how an autocrat can take over a democracy. So that's kind of the spin around the world. Yeah, wow. Shorthand version. Wow. I've done. Um, did, uh, so did you ask for any of these moves or it always was something came up and you either raised your hand or they told you off you go? Oh, I was, I, I definitely wanted to go to the Middle East. I definitely wanted to go to Japan. I definitely wanted to go to the Middle East. Where were you in the Middle East the first time? I don't know if you mentioned. I was in Jerusalem. I actually lived in East Jerusalem. Wow. I lived in basically the occupied territory of East Jerusalem in a place called Sheikh Jarrah, which today is the site and scene of a rather fierce battle over who's going to control Arab East Jerusalem, who's going to control East Jerusalem. That was just a fabulous place. I lived in this house on a hill, and it was the house of the Husseinis. The Husseinis are a famous Palestinian family with this long pedigree in Palestine, and the Mufti of Palestine was their grandfather, great-grandfather, grandfather. 
And so they were this quite fabled family. And again, endlessly gracious. And they would tell me these stories about who had lived in my apartment and the, the sister of King of the Egyptian King was there one summer and she stayed here, Julie. I mean, it was all these stories about who was who really in the Middle East and who had come through, right? Um, and they were just marvelous. And right behind us, but this is what was really fabulous about it, right behind us was something called the Israeli Archaeological Center. It was in the middle of Arab East Jerusalem, and it's the Israeli Archaeology Center. And they would come, they would come up this long drive, and they would troop through the backyard, whoever was worked in that office, and they would open the gate and they would keep walking. And when they did this, all these lights would pop on. And they would come in the middle of the night. And my bedroom was back, and I did in the middle of the night, my, my entire bedroom would light up. And, and next door was this beautiful old rundown kind of down on its heels hotel that had been turned into a canine training center <laughs> for is for the Israeli army. I mean, it was wild around there and it was, it was, it was a busy place. There was a lot going on and I don't think archeology span was going on <laughs> in the building behind us. I think that was something quite different. <laughs> in fact, the former head of Mossad came to visit me in that apartment and I was talking to him and he, geez, this man was just amazing. He sort of absorbed everything around him. And he's one of the very few Israelis who was not at all put out by coming to the Arab side of the city because a lot of people would have been, you know, a lot of people who are Israelis don't want to come to the Arab side of the city they just don't want to do that. Um, mm-hmm. A lot do. Many, many people do. I mean, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But, but he, I, I could tell he was he was a student of it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> he was a student of the Arab side of the city, and we had just just got into these really interesting conversations about how how they get informers among the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Oh, Julie, there's three ways that we do that." And I'm leaning closer and I'm trying to understand. I said, yeah. He said, well, first of all, there's money. Uh-huh. And number two, there's money. <laughs> and I said, and number three, <laughs> we both said money. So he was, you know, basically trying to tell me that, you know, this is really all about turning people with money. But I, 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 I think that was a, a, a quite a simplistic rendering of really how the whole thing how the whole thing happened, but you know that was a world of intrigue that was very hard to penetrate. You know, it was a very very difficult assignment. You know, no side was ever happy with what you wrote, and and they certainly you know let you hear about it. And it was um, you know it was dangerous. It was exacting. In many ways, it was the kind of assignment that I'm cut out for in, the, in this regard. I love the complex, and I love precision. And you have to be incredibly precise with your language. And it was extremely difficult, I have to say. It was, it was extremely difficult. It was very high-pressured, I think often needlessly so, but... Yeah, it was it was quite something. Mm-hmm. And from there we yeah, from there we went to South America, which was a very very different oeuvre. 
it was highly political, but a very different scene. As I say that, you know, the, the left movements were washing over South America then. Mm-hmm. And it was just a very interesting time to be there and, and to be there alone, basically. I covered an entire continent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was great fun. Um, yeah. But Pakistan, too. I mean, Pakistan was an extraordinary time to be there. It was the height of the Taliban. I was there when they found Osama bin Laden. You know, it was a, to- it was a kind of place, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what my routine was there. We had this big bureau, meaning to say we had a house uh, situated there that, you know, had guards and had, you know, razor wire and the whole and the whole bit. But it was always this high calibration about how much do you do and how do you not draw attention to it? And how do you not look like you're an American outpost, which was, you know, it's kind of a fine line you have to draw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had guards in the front, you had guards in the back and, you know, there were all these familiar things too. the place had a big wall around it. And we were next to a big field. And every night, I heard this sort of crazy sounds of, it sounded like teenagers going crazy at at, at a party. And I said to my producer the next day, I said, I said, Janaid, I mean, can you imagine teenagers out at night here at one in the morning kind of going crazy? He said, what are you talking about? I said, this is noise. You can almost set the clock to it. I said, this is noise every night. And it just sounds like, first it sounds kind of quiet. And then it just kind of gets into this crazy kind of squealing and, and like almost hysteria. And he said, Julie, those are wild boars. <laughs> they're wild. They're, 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 they're foraging at the dump next door. Sure enough, that's exactly what they were doing. And a friend of mine came from the Washington Post, stayed at the house before she got settled in Islamabad and said, what on earth is that? every night at one. I said, oh, those are, that's the, um, those are the wild boars. <laughs> I said, yeah, I go to sleep. I, I, I go to sleep to them at night. And one night, Jake, they weren't there. Hmm. And the night they, the night they weren't there, the previous night, I heard this horrendous fight on the other side of the wall. And I didn't know who was battling. It turned out it was the wild dogs facing off with the wild boars <laughs> in Islamabad. And evidently the wild dogs won. And they sent, they sent the wild boars chasing. And I felt very lonely. I missed them. I missed them. So you can, you can used to these crazy, <laughs> used to these crazy things. But I started out by telling you, I would go to bed at night, mm-hmm. Jake, and I would pray that I would be able to get up in the morning. And I'd say, oh, and I'd remonstrate against myself. I'd say, oh, God, I should have, I should have put that safe room up here on the second floor. Why did I put it in the first floor? <laughs> you go to bed <laughs> thinking about these things, right? Like, how am I going to get down there? How am I going to get out of here? How am I going to, yeah, how am I going to dot, dot, dot. So you thought about that stuff. You had to think about it. It was just a different way. It was just a different way of living, you know, and it was, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Wow. It was crazy, but it was also fabulous. I mean, because the people were so fabulous. Yeah. So, yeah, because you've been to so many places, uh, we can't, like, you know, go into each of them very in-depth. So, like, if any anecdotes jump out at you as we're talking, please do go ahead and tell me. Let's maybe get into a little bit of the specifics of how the work works, like how the sausage gets made. And Mm. uh, I find usually the best way to do that is to ask you to pick one story in your career. can be from any time. 
a story that you're proud of and just kind of walk us through how it worked from start to finish, kind of the process or the story behind the story. There are three stories that come to mind and they come to mind because they bear on my deep interest about history. One is the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and learning so much about Hiroshima, the city, Hiroshima as a peace city, what had happened there, the legacy of the place, how they really do see themselves as the keepers of the flame for global peace. Just one anecdote as I was talking, because I talked to so many, did a half hour documentary on this for all things considered for the anniversary. And one of the people I was talking to was a surgeon. He was a doctor and he had helped create the concept or the group of women who came to be known as the Hiroshima maidens. They were young women who were afflicted with goiters on their bodies after the bombing and had been disfigured by them. He had somehow gotten them to the United States and they had surgery, you know, in many cases, massive surgery. And they survived this and it changed their lives. And they came back to Japan. But this was a doctor who was a Japanese doctor who had spent the war in Taiwan. Taiwan was occupied by the Japanese. And I was getting very uncomfortable with this conversation because I felt like I was talking to an, an apologist for the Japanese Imperial Army. And it was getting very uncomfortable and I didn't know where to take this interview. And we had been talking to him for quite a while. And I just kind of took a deep breath and I said, oh, I can't stop now. I mean, we can't just get up and walk out of here. You can't make, and this is another lesson, you know, you're like, you make such an investment, you know, of time and effort in an interview that you, you don't want to walk out empty handed. You just don't want to throw in the towel like that. And I just kind of took a small break and I looked out through a crack in the curtains and I saw a garden and I asked him about it. I said, oh, you have a garden. He said, yes, it's a rose garden. And I said, oh, my grandfather would, was a rose gardener. He would breed roses. And I said, can I go see it? Will you show me? So he gets up and we go out there. This is such an incredible place. And he's showing me the rose that he just bred called the Hiroshima rose. It's not like this world-class rose. So this whole thing takes a different turn, right? This whole interview takes a different turn. Before you know it, I've discovered he's written a symphony about Hiroshima. I mean, I knew nothing about this going, <laughs> going into you know, this conversation with him. So it turned out to be this, just this, this amazing man who, who seemed like an apologist for the war and was anything but. He was a complicated human being. You know, he was a patriot. He was, you know, he was a Japanese patriot and wanted to come to grips with everything, right? With what had happened in the war. And the kind of duty he felt he owed people like the Hiroshima maidens. And that was a, it was a wonderful, I mean, he was just one of many people who were in it. Kenzaburo Oe, the Nobel laureate, was in that piece. He had wrote, written a book called Hiroshima notes. And he read for me from that book. And I kept dropping it in this long half hour documentary. I mean, you just met these incredible people who had seen so much and, and felt so much. And 
were the carriers of the most awful event in the war, you know, that had happened in, in Asia that to spirit the end of the war. Or so, you know, the Americans told themselves. There are people in Asia who have a very different understanding of why the Americans did what they did when they did it. They believe the Americans were just warning the world. This is what we have, so watch out. Which is a very interesting take on things. That's that's not something we we're taught, you know, about what the use of the bomb was for was to end the war, to speed the end of the war because we didn't want to we didn't want a land invasion. And so that was one of these really kind of a deeply felt historic. Um, it was grounded in history. It was all about history. It was all about the war. It was all these massive events. So I, I love these massive events, you know, and that, that sort of boil down to these individuals. And the second story I, I would I would point out was one of my near and dear to my heart stories was the story of the 70th anniversary. Again, it's about anniversaries, about a history of the partition of the subcontinent, just in 2017, where Pakistan was basically cleaved out of India and created at the stroke of midnight, August 1947. And I had the occasion, I mean, nobody wanted to talk. It was really interesting. I mean, it was very difficult to find people who wanted to talk about this in India. I was in India at the time. It was very tough to find people who wanted to talk about it because it was so traumatic. What was traumatic? You had the biggest massive migration of people in human history up until that point. All of these Indians were moving into Pakistan because they were Muslim. And all of these Indians were moving out of Pakistan because they were Hindu. And they didn't want to be trapped in the country they didn't want to be in. And as that movement of humanity crossed, there were just unbelievable atrocities committed by both sides. And it, you know, it was a birth of a nation in blood and to hear these old men tell the story of when they were young men was so moving because it was so seared in their memories, the memory of being a young man in Pakistan and having to leave and what they left behind. They left all of their friends behind. They left all of their family's friends behind and how harrowing it was to actually get out of the country alive. So they told these amazing stories. And then what had become of them when they arrived in India? One was a brother of five, and they had, they had had land all over the Punjab in Pakistan and basically lost everything. And when they came to India, they left as Sikhs, and they had to rebuild it all, try to rebuild it all. So he was just this kind of shattered farmer brother talking about that event as a young man and, and how with great bluster and courage they left Pakistan to come to India and how terribly difficult it all was and how terribly the journey just sounded, well, it was, it was a bloody journey where everybody was prepared to, to pull daggers and did. And another man who became the head of the functional equivalent of the IRS in India was just this amazing sprite of a guy who was a young man in Pakistan who talked about getting on a train and they were trying to board the train and cross out of Pakistan and all he'd left behind. 
his parents had and family had gone ahead because he was still in school and he wanted to finish school. So he was sort of bringing up the rear. And he talked about how they were just in this hurry to get out and they wanted to get on the next train. And he said, and there was this old woman and she got sick and she made all of us. She delayed us all. She delayed us all. And we cursed her. We cursed her. And the next day they get on the next train and they're trundling along and they have to stop and they stop and they get out and they find out what's holding them up. What's holding them up is the train that they would have boarded the day before and everyone on the train is dead. And there are bodies strewn all over the sides of the train tracks. And later in the conversation, he said, you know, I, I'm, I was never special. I didn't survive because I was special. I mean, this guy's like a super brainiac human being and terribly modest, right? Um, he said, I didn't, there was, there was no something, there was something special about me. I didn't survive because I was special. He said, I was just lucky. He said, you know, that old woman who got sick, that was luck. We were just lucky. And he says to me, do you know the story of Napoleon and luck? <laughs> and I said, no. What is the story of Napoleon and luck? He said, Napoleon's generals come to him and they're importuning him to draft onto the battlefield a particular colonel. And they're selling this guy. You know, they're selling this guy to Napoleon. And Napoleon's asking, he's, he's just a great tactician. And, and he, the, the men love him. And, 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 and he said, and by the end of all this, he said, Napoleon looked at them all and said, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh. But is he lucky? <laughs> It tells the story of Napoleon asking, is the guy lucky? Yeah. I mean, the role of luck in life. I mean, that's what this guy is basically telling me. Right. He said, you know, don't underestimate the role of luck in life. And then that's a whole other thing about how you make your luck. I don't think he thinks he makes, he made his luck. He just felt lucky. And the last story is about a group of women, very recent story about a group of women in um, the Philippines who were enslaved sexually by the Japanese army that occupied the Philippines during World War II. Now, people knew about this story. They knew about comfort women in Korea, as they were so, the so-called comfort women in Korea, who were basically dragooned into service to have sexual intercourse with soldiers, Japanese imperial troops. And that had been a, you know, long in the news. Right. But the whole idea of the Filipinas was not something many people knew about. So in 2019, we began to go look for these people. And we found groups that had, you know, kind of grown up around them. I mean, it's not that they were unknown, but they were not very well known internationally at all. And so we found it was this huge scavenger hunt, finding these women, convincing them to talk, hearing their harrowing stories of what it was like to be young girls torn from their families and put into, you know, sexual servitude into the Japanese army and how just amazing they survive, right? Amazing they survive. And it's their story of struggle. No one says a word about this, Jake, for 50 years. No one says a word about this, right? And then... There's a beauty queen, Nelia Sancho, 
from the Philippines, who happens to be named Miss Pacific in Australia. And she's also extremely smart. And she goes and tours. She goes and tours, you know, Asia. This is like the, the 80s, early 80s, late 80s. And she, she winds up in Korea and she starts to hear the stories of these comfort women. And it dawns on her, wait a minute, the Japanese occupied the Philippines. There must be women in the Philippines like this. So she goes home. She solicits the help of a, of a radio station who puts out a call for these women to come forward. One woman does, right? One woman does, and she starts and encourages everybody else to come out. Not everybody, but a lot of women then hear her, and then they find the courage 50 years later, 50 years after the war, to come out and find their voice and explain to the world what had happened to them. So these women become this they become icons, actually. They, they go and testify, you know, about changing the, the Rome statute over, you know, sexualized abuse of, of women in war. It becomes part of jurisprudence. And they become these icons of the sexualization of women in war. And now there are growing up all over the world statues to these women that the Japanese today are trying to take down. This fight is not over. And as one Japanese diplomat said to me, it never will be. And that's what my people don't understand. This fight will never be over. You cannot do that to women and expect that this will go away. It won't go away. So all we can do is be contrite and humble and attempt to understand their pain. This man, I mean, he to me, he was kind of the archetypal Japanese thoughtful guru. You know, he was like this philosophical soul who was a you know retired diplomat. And we took forever for us to kind of find him. But we, you know, you mine these people and and they just enlighten, they enlighten the whole story of the pain that these the understanding of the pain that they inflicted and what they owe these women. And these women are battling still, if you can believe it, to get reparations and to get acknowledgement that this happened. Because the courts in Tokyo and the Tokyo government's line has always been, that has long been settled since the Treaty of San Francisco in the 1950s. Well, it never was, because these women weren't even talked about until the 1990s. So they're still battling. I mean, they're, they're dying off. They're in their late 80s and their 90s, and they've still got this, they're still at the United Nations trying to get their own government to do something to recognize them and, and, and somehow find a road to reparations for them. So it, they are living history, you know, they're living history. The survivors of Hiroshima and, and Harada-san, is, he's, he was living history. Um, these old men from, 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 from India who just were brought to tears thinking about their lives so long ago as young men, as India was carved up and Pakistan was born. They're living history. And to hear their stories, to me, is always terribly moving and important to know what happened. These people are the witnesses. Yeah, wow, those are three amazing stories, three very emotional-sounding stories. The next up is the lightning round, which is faster-paced questions, but it just means, you know, it's not telling the whole story of your life. You can feel free to answer at whatever length you like. So the first question is, 
what is a must-read publication for you covering Southeast Asia that if you're interested in the region, you should look into but might not necessarily have heard of if you're, say, sitting in the United States? I read the Nikkei Asia daily. It comes out. Those are people who are steeped in the region. They stare at it all the time. It's a perspective of the region by the region, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, sometimes makes a massive difference. You know, you and I can sort of dive bomb into someplace, but somebody else who lives there is going to have, you know, a very interesting take on events. Sure, sure. Perhaps perhaps closer to the truth. (laughs) Um, It is called, yeah, Nikkei Asia, asia asia.nikkei.com. It's kind of a bit of a Bible. That's a good shout. Um, And then the next question is, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun that isn't really related to your job? So vaguely journalistic in nature, but, uh, and can be any medium, but more for fun. When I walk, I listen to novels. I don't tend to listen to podcasts when I walk. I listen to writers. Um, I find that terribly relaxing. And when you get a beautifully narrated story, they're just kind of transporting. And when you get particularly clever people, they're killingly funny. So <laughs> what would be an example of, oh, I, I, something I listened to that I thought was, a, was, was great fun was a book called The... The Splendid in the Vile is one of these great listen-tos because it evokes all of these characters from World War II, Churchill and his family, and what it was like during the war. And and what you come away with learning sort of almost scandalously is how so few beats were missed by the upper class in terms of partying and in terms of dinners and in terms <laughs> of the weekend outings. It was quite staggering, you know? So that was, that was a fun one. That's a, that's a good listen to. Let's see. The next question is, what is the best journalistic article piece, whatever medium again, you know, audio, radio, video that you've consumed recently? and recently is relative, and it can't be from your own publication. You know, I have to say, I found the book Empire of Pain by, I think he's a New Yorker journalist, absolutely extraordinary. It's the story of the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and the opioid crisis and their role in it and how from from for decades for decades before the opioid crisis they were into valium and so there's highly addictive drugs and how the fda sort of held the door for them on countless occasions to really perpetrate pain against the american people and the revolving door inside the fda i mean this is a book everyone should read about it's about healthcare in america and how it's regulated and how, you know, in the words of the book, in the words of people who are quoted in the book, you know, how the Sackler family got away with murder, quote unquote. 
And just this week, they were said they were sitting, the Sackler family was sitting in court. The judgment being that nobody's going to jail and you will forfeit billions. Having made billions and billions, you'll forfeit some of that. But it's just this incredible story of the eyes wide open, you know, a crime being committed with eyes wide open and how the system finally catches up with it. And now just in the past few weeks, we see, you know, what the settlement was and what it meant and how difficult the case was to make and to get it to stick in terms of, I mean, the lawyering must have been brilliant on the Sackler side. But the Sacklers in the end, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Sacklers have their names slapped up on more museums and more wings across the world and institutions from Britain to Washington to, to, to New York to, I believe, even Paris. And they've basically been, you know, systematically stripped of it. It's ignominy. They still have piles of money, but my God, what an ignominious story. It's quite something. I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it. Empire of Pain. Um, let's see if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Well, I suppose it would be Martha Gellhorn, who was one of the great correspondents of the war correspondents of the 20th century. She started not as a correspondent, actually. She wasn't even a journalist in the Spanish Civil War. She was just basically there as a witness. She wanted to be there where, where fascism was actually being fought. Um, and she accidentally becomes a war correspondent. She was the only woman at D-Day. She saw the liberation of Dachau, which she actually later described as one of the worst things. That was It was the worst thing that she had witnessed because it was the organized, what she called the organized reduction of human beings to skeletons. And her fear was that you can't capture that. You know, you don't think you got it right. The shock of it makes you less observant than you ought to be, she said. And then, of course, she marries Hemingway. And it's a uh, tumultuous marriage. But she has, she has a 60-year-long career, and she turns her, her journalism into, uh, into fiction. So she just kept on going. Mm-hmm. So she'd be, hard to, she'd be hard not to try to emulate <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And there's a reason why I say, and you would have their career and not, you would have their entire lives. Cause I realize, yeah, you might not want the, the marriage to Ernest Hemingway or some of the personal life. Uh, oh no, but that was all part of, you know, that was the, you know, that was all part of the great high and great low of her life. Right. The great high. I mean, these, you know, people who live rich, full lives have huge highs and huge lows. Right. And she had both of that with him. I mean, they were going to be married for a second time. They actually were going to be married for a second time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. There you are. Good answer. Uh, let's see. Only a couple questions, a few questions left. Uh, what is one thing most people don't know about you? One thing people don't know about me, one thing people don't know about me is that at heart, I'm a kid. <laughs> That's something people don't know about me. I'm basically a little kid at heart. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, Which is, I think, how I can go through the world and still find wonder everywhere, you know? I mean, I'm not one of these, you know, world-weary people. I'm, I'm not. I don't have that capacity. I don't get bored on planes. 
<laughs> I don't know the meaning. I guess, I guess what people go, I don't know what it means to be bored. Mm. I'm never bored. I've never said that to my mother, I think, is from, from the times we'll get, I'm bored. I never said that. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't inhabit that boredom world. Maybe I'm just too banal, but I don't know. That's good. That's a good quality to have. What is the coolest or weirdest or strangest or a situation your job has ever taken you into? Um, I find it's difficult to sum it up, but I guess like a, a pinch me, I can't believe this is my life sort of moment. Oh, I have to tell you, I mean, I, I, I was supposed five years of walking through Japan. Much of it was like that. I mean, it was just so in, mm-hmm. incredibly enchanting. It was so incredibly enchanting. But I suppose the one of the weirdest things, and I don't know how weird this is, I actually interviewed a dog. <laughs> I, had arrived, I arrived in London, and on our desk were a bunch of dog lovers. And they said, Julie, you have to go do the stories of the kennels. I mean, they're so freaked out that you have to... Your, your dog can't come home with you and it has to be put in a kennel for nine months. And they're so afraid of rabies and go do that story. And I said, Oh, come on, you guys, you can't be, you gotta be kidding me. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. So I go out to the end of the tube line and I find this, one of the oldest kennels in all of Britain. Right. And I proceed to, to walk up and down and I see these poor dogs. And I said, what's the story of this dog? Oh, his family, you know, they're, um, they they came back from France and, you know, he's still got to be here another, you know, X number of months. And I, and so then I start engaging. So I turn away from the owner and I start talking to the dog and it was hysterical. <laughs> I, oh no, you poor thing. Do you feel abandoned? And this dog goes, <laughs> I said, Oh no. Do they come and see you? Do people, do they come and see you? he's like no no nobody can come nobody can so this goes on for like five minutes so i take the guy and i leave it was hilarious and i leave and i remember they promoted some local station promote this piece for all things considered and they said okay coming up julie mccarthy's interviewing a dog (laughs) (laughs) but it was so it would be you know it was just this kind of little send-up story and it was it was fun yeah, I mean, there are so many fun stories in Britain because they're so funny. I mean, they're so naturally funny. There was um, a plinth. There was an empty plinth in uh, Trafalgar Square. Why was it empty? Somebody had taken off. Oh, I don't know. There was the Conqueror of Sindh on one plinth, you know, and then there's, you know, Admiral. Um, who is it? Who is in Trafalgar Square? It's um, Battle of Waterloo. Who's in... <laughs> <laughs> Square. So they, they you know the plinths. They're, they're taking. They're taking everybody off. Mm-hmm. And this plinth was empty, and I think the plinth was empty because this something had caused a stir that early on removed this plinth. And I just remember people standing there. And what would happen was you would have alternating pieces of art up on this plinth. You know, so some artists would get their shot. You know, and the public would come around and they'd gaze and they'd gawk. And then people would, you know, the people who make these decisions, you know, in their, in, in the, you know, the, the star chamber would make the decisions looking at, you know, how people reacted to this piece of art sitting on the plinth. And there was this one piece of art. It was a statue and it was supposed to be a statue of Christ. And it was this guy, he almost looked like, he almost looked like Caesar, you know, he's this kind of tall kind of you know, Caesar-like haircut, and he had this crown of thorns on his head. 
and I'm asking this woman, what do you think? What do you think of this statue? And she says, <laughs> well, I think it looks like my nephew, Blintley. <laughs> oh, my God, your nephew, Blintley. Looks like my, yes, I think it looks a lot like my nephew, Blintley. I mean, you know, so, I mean, you would go through, how could you not fall in love with a place like England? The people were so, they were so funny and they were so, <laughs> so charming. So, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see, just two questions left. Uh, first, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? I, I really thought that... Um, God, Spotlight, was that the name of the movie? Yep, yep. Spotlight was a, just a really well done movie. But I also loved Catherine Graham's story. I loved The Post, the story of The Post and the Pentagon Papers. And here it is. I mean, this is what killed me about that movie, which was really well done. And I thought Meryl Streep was a brilliant Catherine Graham. She was a brilliant Catherine Graham. And Tom Hanks was a brilliant Ben Bradley. There's so many Ben Bradleys in the history of film that I have to like run through my mind, like which one played him? Yeah, there? that's that's right. <laughs> Very good. But yes, I thought that was a that was tremendously well done, and I thought the great irony of the whole thing, the great irony of the whole thing, is Abe Rosenberg keeps Rosen keeps leaving the table from Catherine Graham because he's got to go take all these phone calls about the Pentagon Papers. <laughs> why isn't this movie about the New York times? You know, it was so brilliant that it's about the Washington post that <laughs> didn't get the Pentagon papers. It was the New York times who had the scoop, but the movie gets made about the Washington post. I thought that was great. That is funny. And then the final question is qualifications aside. If you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I would love to be a professional athlete. And or a freelance Supreme Court justice. <laughs> there you go. Part-time freelance. <laughs> I'm sure there's an opening. Um, <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'll wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Julie. Thank you, Jake. It's great fun. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Julie McCarthy the Southeast Asia correspondent for National Public Radio. I'll post links to some of the things Julie talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com/foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called "Love Chances" by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, June 5th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring. And this is Foreign Correspondence.